I've been flossing recently. <laughs> My mom would like that. It's not normal for me. I've been, uh, I'm not very good about flossing, never have been. And, uh, you know, it doesn't really work to try to floss at the last minute because then your gums are all messed up when you go to the dentist. And we had, when I was a kid, I had like the meanest uh, dental assistant that you can possibly imagine like and, and the, uh, just the week before you'd start flossing because you're like this lady's gonna yell at me and I'm scared to death as an eight-year-old but they know right and, and uh, the truth is uh, we're not faithful about a lot of things it, it seems like in our lives a lot of things that we know are good for us flossing would be an easy one for me and uh, and other things it seems that we are faithful towards and for me uh, sports was always something that it was easy for me to be faithful uh, about and I remember in college trying actually going asking my dad to give me a ride to practice when I, I think I had 103 or 104 degree temperature and, and I didn't think I could drive safely but I, I needed to be at practice and there was a level of faithfulness that just was in me. Uh, one time uh, after the end of my season, my sophomore year of baseball, I uh, got a contusion on my left fibula and uh, I was told it wasn't broken and I tried, uh, I, I didn't succeed very well, but I tried to go to an open gym, which wasn't even mandatory basketball practice, like two days later. I was on crutches at school and trying to play basketball afterwards simply because I wanted to make sure that I secured my spot on the team the next year. And, and so I see this like this dichotomy in my life where I can be the least faithful person about certain things and I can be the most faithful person about other things. And it really depends on what it is. And I think today we'll see kind of the answer to, to what drives us to be faithful about something and what kind of makes us not be faithful, really inconsistent about other things. And the truth is, I think, maybe you're not this way, but, but almost everybody, I think, that sits in front of me today struggles with being faithful to certain areas that, that you wish that you could just do often, do well, do consistently, continue in even when it gets difficult. And uh, it, it's pretty, you know, it's easy to see because a lot of people, you know, will say like, I just, I wish I would read the Bible more, or pray more, and that's not what this sermon is about at all. But, but you can see it like it's something, reading the Bible and praying more is like a big spiritual fix, we think. And, and, and yet, even though we think it's that big spiritual fix, it's really hard for us to continue to do it sometimes. And here's what I think the big difference is. And I think this passage of scripture, this, this part of Revelation that's written to a church in Smyrna, I think that it will help us see what I'm about to say. And that is this, we are faithful when we can see the true benefit of something. For me and flossing, I, I, I've been doing it recently because I did a little research and I was like, man, that seems really important and I, I, I should do that. And in about a month, I'll forget about that research and I won't be flossing anymore. I won't talk about that in my sermon, but, but I'll stop. For sports, it was, I, I this is the truth, like I loved to be awesome. I mean, I loved to hear the crowd roar. I would talk about in, in high school, I would say to people like, look, if there's no crowd, there's no game, and so I'm going to 
I'm going to put on a show. I mean, it's going to be part of what I do. And, and it drives me nuts when people do that, but I was that guy. And in fact, my senior year after basketball, the coach gives the little speech, you know, and they talk nicely about you. And I, I remember my high school coach saying, I just wanted to lie to Chad and tell him that, that every game was a TV game because whenever the cameras came, it was like it changed things for him. And, and for me, it was just like, I want to beat you. I'm highly competitive and and I want everybody to see that I beat you and, and I want the whole world to know that I am better than you and so you get up with 103 degree temperature and you're like I'm going to practice because somebody's going to be there and I'm going to want to beat them and I'm going to want everybody to know about it and so I saw the benefit in that and flossing just is not fun right and it doesn't I mean yeah it fixes heart disease but but come on there's no glory in it nobody's ever looked at me and said like awesome flossing man you know like you don't say that and, and so the difference I I think between faithful and unfaithful is simply whether or not we see the true benefit in something. If we can see the value and the goal and the reward that we will receive for doing something, we are more faithful to it than when we don't. And Jesus is, in this series, we're looking at these, these statements by Jesus to individual churches and he writes to this one church that we'll look at today in Smyrna and he says, be faithful. And then I think he, see, he shows them the reason that they ought to be faithful, the goal, the reward, the victory, as he will call it. So let's just start Revelation 2.8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Again, it seems that every church has an angel that kind of oversees it and that God uses in the church's midst. And it seems that even God communicates in some way through his angel to the churches that exist, all Christian churches. And it's to the church in a city called Smyrna. We have a picture, a map that I think will be helpful to you. And uh, this is kind of the order of the seven churches here. We talked about Ephesus last week, and now we're looking at a church in Smyrna. And if you just kind of go up a little bit from Ephesus, then you'd find this church in Smyrna. And so again, this letter that we're reading, it's a letter that we call Revelation, is passing from one church to another. And so it makes sense. Here's John on the island of Patmos, and he sends this letter off, and it would have landed first in a city called Ephesus. And from Ephesus, which was a strong and powerful and mighty city, they would have easily been able to send it to the next church, the church in Smyrna, which is just north of it. It's modern day Izmir, if you look on a map in the country of Turkey today. Uh, it was a port city with a good harbor, and it was 35 miles to be exact, northwest of Ephesus. Smyrna rivaled Ephesus for power. It just lost slightly, but it was a big time city in Asia Minor, and it laid claim to being the first city of Asia in size and beauty. And it is a naturally beautiful place. I mean, it is like the Oregon of Asia over there. It is, it is really, really beautiful. And for three centuries, Smyrna had been one of the most important cities. So it's not, like, it's not like they're new on the scene, like they've gained power. It's not like Portland, to use another reference, where people are starting to notice that it's the greatest city on earth. And, and instead, it's three centuries, people have been like, that is a powerful, powerful city. Here's the other part of that, being big and mighty and being around for, uh, for a long time in Asia. They were exceptionally pro-Roman. 
And Christians suffered intense hostility during the first century there. And that will factor into what we look at today. But they were smart because they realized that that Rome was going to take them over and they jumped on board way early in that process. They're like, we're not putting up a fight. You tell us what to do. We're here to serve. And so they were pro-Roman. Like Ephesus, Smyrna was an imperial center, a, a important center, excuse me, of the imperial cult. And you can find buildings there and monuments to worship the emperor and to worship false gods. And then we know this, and this is a really important part of Christian history, but Polycarp, who was someone who learned under John, get this straight, get this relationship straight, this is really, this is important and fascinating. Polycarp, he was a disciple Uh, Somebody who learned from John who is actually writing the book of Revelation, okay? So like he knows him personally. He'd sit around and be like, how was it when Jesus walked on water? What did that seem like? And Polycarp would sit there and hear the answers from John. He becomes one of the first Christian martyrs and he lived right there in Smyrna and he died as a martyr in the early second century. And so this city has a long history of Christianity, but it also has a long history of persecution. And and there's actually about three Christian churches there today that still tick on and they still battle on for Jesus, but it's like 500 people in a a very large city. Revelation 2.8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life Again, and so this again is a uh, a uh, a reference to Jesus, and it's interesting because if you go back in history and you study Smyrna, Smyrna actually had almost been destroyed. They had almost ceased to be a city, and then they had come back from the ashes, if you will, and they had become a prominent great city three centuries before we read this. Uh, this was so much a part of their history that actually people started to recognize them in connection to the mythical phoenix, and, and if you don't know what phoenix is, it's, it's a bird that rises from the ashes and is a picture uh, in non-Christian world of resurrection. And so notice this again, if you live in a city that is known for resurrection, And you're trying to serve Jesus there, but the persecution is all around you. It's important that Jesus is the first and the last who died and came to life again. It's like Jesus, as he writes this letter, is like, look, I know your city's great, and the leaders there think they're awesome because once the city almost died off, but now they're this prominent place that is, that is connected to the Romans and has power and prestige and is beautiful. But guess who really came to life? It is the Jesus that you serve. I'll tell you one of the things this series has already done for me in the three weeks that we've, that we've been in it uh, is that it, it reminds me of how important the resurrection is. And we kind of, we did, we literally came into this series out of Easter, but I think it's so just easy for us as kind of modern Christians to really focus on the fact that Jesus died to save us from our sins. But because we're not persecuted, maybe, because, uh, I don't know, because we really focus on evangelizing, we forget how important it is that Jesus came back to life. I mean, he came back to life, and that should give us hope and peace and comfort, even when life is difficult and being a Christian is really, really hard. He continues, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. 
I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, be faithful, even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Jesus starts by saying, I know. And then he's going to launch into all these difficulties that they're having, but I think, I think that the words I know are just about as important as any words in this whole passage because I think that sometimes we kind of say, yeah, Jesus knows what I'm going through. But somewhere in our hearts, it's like, is he really paying attention? I mean, does he really know what I'm going through? Does he really even, and this is a big one, does he really even care what I'm going through? But Jesus to this church who is struggling mightily says, hey, I know what you are going through. I'm paying attention to what you are going through. I have not taken my eyes off of you. I understand your pain. I understand your struggles. I understand your hurts. And I think we would do well in the midst of our pain and suffering, the things that we go through, even like on a daily basis, just when somebody makes you mad or work isn't going as planned or whatever it might be, just to stop and be like, man, Jesus knows. Jesus knows and Jesus is alive. From there, he says these, these really three things that they're going through. And the first one is afflictions. And this refers to pressure. Uh, the word can mean compression. And the idea is a burden or an anguish, an anguish from the outside that is making us feel stress or pressure or scared or afraid or stressed out or anxious or whatever it might be. And so he looks at these people and says, look, I know that there's pressure from the outside. And he's specifically referring to people trying to stop them from being Christians, to try to stop them from being faithful. I understand that you are under intense pressure. He says that they are, are in poverty. And this is really interesting because where they lived and in Asia as a whole, it would have been really, really important for them to be a part of the trade network that existed in their city. And you had really a couple of choices. You could either be a Roman and be a part of that and worship the emperor and be a part of the trade that took place, or you could be a part of the synagogue. That's where Jews worshiped in cities that weren't Jerusalem. And these people, the Christians who lived there, were refusing to worship the emperor. And they were refusing to worship the false gods of each city. And so now you're out. You can no longer trade with us. You can no longer get your food from us. You can no longer get your jobs from us. And the Jewish people that were there were being kicked out of the synagogues because they were following Jesus. And Jews were saying, he's not actually the Messiah. And so these people are literally becoming poor because they love Jesus and they're trying to be faithful to him. I mean, they're having trouble finding work. They're having trouble finding a place to buy food. They're having trouble meeting ends meet simply because they're serving Jesus. And Jesus says, I know that you are poor because of me. And then he says that he knows that they are being slandered. And the word denotes the worst kind of slander. It's also sometimes translated blasphemy, which I think just sounds worse. And, and so these people are being blasphemed. They're being slandered. They're being verbally abused by the people that exist around them that aren't Christians. 
A big part of that is the Jews that, that, that might be referred to as the synagogue of Satan. That reference can be to Jewish people that are in charge, that are leaders, or it can be a reference to Christians who have decided to act like the Jews and, and, and really given in to the ways of the world in order that they can find food. And so he says, look, I know three things. I know that you are afflicted. You have a ton of stress and pressure. I know that you are in poverty. You're poor and you, you can't find work. And I know that you are being slandered. People are making fun of you. People are talking bad about you. And the truth is, like, that's what we're scared of when it comes to living for Jesus, isn't it? I mean, doesn't it describe everything that you worry about if you put yourself out there for Jesus? I mean, like, even something simple. If I tell them I'm a Christian, then they're, they're going to... They're gonna, look at me differently and I feel stressed about that. They're gonna, they're gonna maybe pull their business away from me and, and I won't be able to make the money from them and whatever connection that is or they're gonna talk bad about me. We worry about that and so we refuse to put ourselves on the line and Jesus says, look, I know that you're going through exactly what people fear when they think about living for Jesus. The Jewish community in Smyrna seems to have been substantial. And uh, if you, if I didn't, I don't remember if I said this last week, but, but the Roman people looked at the Jews and they allowed for the Jews to, to worship their God. But these people that are living there are now Christians and people are starting to recognize they don't think like the Jews. And so they are being slandered and afflicted and they're in poverty because of it. And Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. Now this is important and encouraging and I think what we want to hear, right? When we're like trying to live for Jesus and somebody says something mean about us or when we're trying to live for Jesus and putting added pressure onto our lives or when we're trying to live for Jesus and it is costing us financially, like we want Jesus to just to say like, hey, don't be afraid. And usually in scripture when, when God says or an angel says for God or Jesus says don't be afraid it's usually followed by something like for I am with you always. But here we have no such luck because what we read next is the least comforting thing maybe in all the history of the world. He says I know that you're poor and, and you have pressure and I know that you are struggling and I know these things. Don't be afraid. And oh, by the way, there are three things that you might suffer in the future. You might go to prison, he says, for 10 days. You might go to prison for 10 days. You might be persecuted. And these people would have understood that persecution might mean they would literally be tortured so that the, the government could find out if other people were Christians or not. And so they, they, Jesus says, hey, by the way, don't be afraid. You might go to jail and you might be tortured. And oh, by the way, you might die. Like, what am, what am I not supposed to be afraid about? I mean, you should have said, hey, be afraid because. I mean, that would have made logical sense, Right? Or, hey, don't be afraid because, I don't know, he could have said, like, I love you, and then not told him. Like, I don't want to know. <laughs> I mean, personally, like, I, maybe you do, and I think I've even had this debate. I'm just remembering that now. Like, would you want to know if, if you were going to die tomorrow? And I, I don't know that I would want to know, and I really don't want to know if I'm going to be thrown in prison for no good reason tomorrow, and people are going to torture me tomorrow. I like today too much, and I think today is sunny, and I'm at church, and it's enjoyable, and I don't want somebody to come in there and here and be like, hey, you got to go to prison tomorrow, and they're going to torture you, 
Because that ruins Mother's Day, totally. Like, Mother's Day down the drain. Even for the motherly figures in my life, they're going to be worried about me. They're going to be stressed. And, and, and then my grandma is going to be just a basket case and everything will be absolutely terrible because somebody came in. And Jesus is like, hey, don't be scared about what you're facing, but you might go to prison and you might be tortured and you might die. That's weird. It's a weird thing to say. And then he drops then this in. Be faithful. The order of this letter to this church does not seem good to me. If it wasn't Jesus writing, I might dismiss it and say, let's just go to the next one because this, this, is, this, is, this is not what I want to hear. And I guess what Jesus is saying to us is like, hey, look, look, sometimes people won't like you because of me. And by the way, in your country, there's a chance it doesn't get better. I mean, you can already see how Christians in some ways were slandered for what we believe and people look at us as, as outdated and they're starting to think sometimes that we're, we're just scientifically naive and that we're idiots and we have our heads buried in the sand and these things are starting to be said more and more. And Jesus knows. And Jesus might be saying, he hasn't written us a letter yet, but he might be saying to our church, hey, bad news, don't be afraid, but it might get worse for you. Be faithful. Be faithful. Faithfulness simply is really doing what is right, doing what Jesus wants you to do, no matter how difficult it becomes, no matter what it costs you, no matter what, no matter what others say, no matter if persecution comes, no matter if affliction comes, no matter if poverty comes, no matter what. Being faithful is saying, I'm going to do what Jesus wants me to do. And here's, this is what's sad. This is what's sad. And the church in Smyrna is, is a church that is apparently more faithful than us. But when I look at the American church today, I see anything but faithfulness. I think we have an epidemic. I think the thing that is destroying, literally destroying the fabric of American church life is that we don't have faithfulness anymore. Man, we have passion sometimes. There's lots of really passionate people about Jesus. And we have joy. And, and I think in some churches like ours, there's community, there's connection. And I think that, that people have hearts to like reach the lost still. And I think oftentimes we're not even afraid to take a stand for what we believe to be right. But I see this just, just giant lack of faithfulness. People do things whenever it's easy and they forget about them whenever it becomes hard. I mean, I think of things like people just break their commitments to a church. And sometimes they do it because some person in the church, not even necessarily a leader of the church, somebody in the church said something they don't like. And then they just go to the church down the road. And I can tell you that, that I, I know that most people who have left our church through the years have left another church since our church. And so people just, they commit to a church, they're involved in a church, and then they just walk away from churches. Other people sin, and then they claim it's a struggle. Like, man, yeah, I'm just really struggling with that. And people do struggle with sins and addictions, and I get that, but other people, they just sin, and like, well, that's a real struggle. You're not struggling with that, you're just doing it. You're just choosing to sin. Like you are making a decision to not do what God wants you to do and because you're a weenie, you're, you want an excuse and you say like, I, I, just, I just struggle with that. 
You're a dirty liar. You don't struggle with it. You're not faithful to Jesus. That's the problem. And then there's other people who are just like, well, I'm too busy to do these things that I know God wants me to do, but if I ever have the time, then I'll do it. And then you just like watch TV all the time. It's like, that's not faithful. That's unfaithful. And I just look, I look around and, and my generation is the worst. It's absolutely the worst. I'll just be up front and, and I look at my grandfather's generation and I think like you are so much more faithful. You might not have had as much passion, you might not have shown people you cared as much, but you were faithful, and, and I am just scared that when, when the World War II generation is finally gone and, and all of them have died, that the churches are just gonna crumble because there will be no faithfulness left. I mean, when I just, when I like look around or have conversations, it's just this just utter lack of faithfulness. People are not faithful to Jesus. And, and I, like, I have conversations where people will say, like, yeah, I really know Jesus wants me to do this, and I'm going to do it. And then like two minutes later, not literally, but like a day later, they've forgotten about it, and they're not doing it anymore. It's like, how can you be that unfaithful? And faithfulness is more and more standing out in, in the church today. And, and the people that we have in our church, we have, we have a lot of faithful people. So I might be preaching to the choir again, but, but we have a lot of faithful people. And when you know that somebody is gonna do what they believe God has called them to do and what they've signed up to do and committed to do, and you know they'll actually do it, then, then as a pastor, like that's like the most valuable thing in churches today. The most valuable thing is not your passion. The most valuable thing is somebody who will do what they've actually said they're going to do because it is gone. And if you're a Christian, at some point you said, I am going to live for Jesus and I'm gonna do my best to live for Jesus. And if you're in my generation, you've probably done that every other day of your life. The church needs to be faithful. And Jesus is, I mean, come on. Like, we're not faithful because we work gets busy or because we don't feel like it or because we, there's a new show on TV. And these people, like, are poor and slandered and afflicted and they might and they will, we know, go to prison and they will be maybe tortured and they might die and some of them will die, including a man named Polycarp for Jesus. And Jesus in the middle isn't like, hey, don't be afraid, just kind of hang out, lay low, don't do what I want you to do some days and when the Romans are around, just kind of act like you don't know me or when the Jews are there just pretend that you're one of them no Jesus is saying like be faithful and then notice even to the point of death and I'm pretty sure if he would say to the point of death he would say to the point of being tired or to the point of being made fun of or to the point of not watching a show or to the point of fill in the blank in your life and I, I really believe just with my whole heart the American church is going to get back to where, where we like to see it be, where it's actually growing, where people are coming to salvation and uh, where, where churches are healthy and there's, there's love and unity and people can look at us and, and know that, that we're doing what Jesus wants, then it's going to take us making a decision to be faithful, not perfect. Faithfulness is not perfection, but faithful. Striving to do what you know is right, even when you don't feel like it, when it's hard, when it's difficult, whatever it might be. 
And then he gives this imagery, and it's perfect for me. It might not work for you, but he says, I will give you life as a victor's crown. And this crown looked like a wreath. And sometimes when we read that sentence, I think, if you're a Bible person that's read the Bible, if you've read the book of Revelation, you picture like a gold crown. And the idea might be like, cool, I'm gonna be awesome like a king. But actually what Jesus is saying is like, you're gonna look like a champion. I mean, that's what he's saying. The wreath was given to people that won a race, that won the Olympics, that succeeded in athletics, basically. And it's not made of gold. It, was, it looked like a wreath. I mean, it looked like the thing you hang on your door during Christmas. I mean, that's pretty, this one's not as pretty as probably the one you have, but that's, that's what it looked like. And so the symbolism is not like, I'm gonna make you rich. The symbolism is, symbolism is not like, I'm gonna make you powerful and wealthy and have everybody look at you. The symbolism is, I'm gonna make you a champion. It's like getting a trophy or a ring in our current society today in the way that we think about sports. And I think I think that this imagery, for me, it just works perfectly because I am ultra competitive. And Jesus is saying, do you want to know what winning is? Do you want to know how to win? Winning is being faithful to me. And then the championship, the reward, the trophy is that I will give you life forevermore. And I want to be a champion, man. I mean, I've always wanted to be a winner. I wanna be a winner. And too many people in our world today just simply don't care uh, about winning. And if they do, then, they, then winning for them is something far less important than eternal life. I mean, it's like things like getting a promotion at work or making people happy or having a nicer house or having people like you more. And Jesus says, look, time out. If you're faithful, I'll tell you what the ultimate form of victory is. I'll tell you what the championship looks like. It looks like eternal life with me. Now, we don't earn our way into heaven, but Jesus is saying about Christians, Christians should be, ought to be, will be faithful to me. They will do what I've called them to do even when it's hard. Paul says it like this, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul is saying, look, when it comes to the Christian life, do it like you're trying to win a championship. I mean, do it like, like everything depends on it. Do it like the cameras are on and you wanna not get embarrassed, but you wanna beat everybody else. I mean, I don't think we should be trying to like kick people to the side or anything like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave something that's gonna make them sin because I'm, I'm gonna get the prize. I mean, that's not what Paul's saying. What he's saying is you need to compete. You need to make the effort like you were trying to win. Now, if you are not a sports person, then, then this may not work for you. Like if you haven't grown up in a competitive world, but, but just, just for a moment, 
Just consider, like, what would make my pastor show up with 103-degree temperature? It's winning. I mean, what would make my pastor play through? I've played through, like, the most intense pain. Pain that I'll tell you what, like, if I felt it today, I wouldn't even work on a sermon. But when it came to, like, winning, I would get up and I'd go and I'd try to do it. I've started to, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, say to my wife when I'm feeling sick, she knows this now. I asked this question. I'll say it out loud to her. Would Coach Gar make me practice today? That's my basketball coach in high school. And, and if I say yes, which was always, um, then, I, then I think I can probably do the work that I need to do today. I mean, I could probably get this done because, because something's riding on it, and I believe that about what I do at this church. And I hope that you can just kind of like ask yourself and whatever it is for you, what has driven you? What has like caused you to want to succeed and made your blood boil and made you get up even when it was painful and it was a struggle and it was hard and said, I'm gonna keep going and keep doing it because I want this thing so bad. Whatever it is, Paul is saying to us and Jesus is saying to us through our passage today, go at Christianity like that. And I think we got like this whole backwards thing. Like this is how we, like Christianity in our minds is pictured like this. Like, hey, I've made the team. And now I get to go sit on the bench and hang out. Man, I hate, I don't hate. I don't like people like that in sports. Like they're just like, hey, I'm on the team. I'm hanging out. It doesn't matter how good I am. Like, man, like be somebody who wants to do something. Be somebody that wants to make a difference. And I know that each of you have your things. For some of you, it could be flossing. I don't know. But each of you have your things that just make you get up in the morning, no matter how hard or how much you hurt or how difficult it is or what it's gonna cost you, and you go at it again. You can see the difference in the Portland Trailblazers. I mean, to be honest with you, if you watched any of the last two basketball series, in the first round, they desperately wanted to win. I mean, they would have run through a wall. That's cliche to say, but they would have won through a wall to win that first series. And then you could just see it. Like, well, we did what we wanted to do this year. And now they've laid down and died. And it sucks. I mean, honestly, like, it's so dumb to me. And, and, and this is American Christianity. It's like the Blazers in the second round in the world, whatever makes their blood boil, they're like, they're, they're like the Spurs. Like, they get it. Like, we want something. Sometimes it's to tear Christianity down, and they're getting after it. But we in the church are like, made the team, looking forward to heaven. And Jesus is saying, like, if you're really looking forward to heaven, be faithful. I mean, what it really takes is you being faithful. And so what I want you to hear, what I just want in your head is like, hey, Jesus says this last, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, and by victorious he means faithful, will not be hurt at all by the second death, will have eternal life. And so all I want you to hear today, I mean, just if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, just say, what is it that makes me work? Even when it hurts and I hate it and it doesn't feel fun, what is it that drives me? Picture that and then apply it to your Christianity. 
Apply it to your service of Jesus. Apply it to your sin and or not sin and the efforts you make there. Apply it to every aspect of living for Jesus. That's what our world needs from us. I mean, honestly, we're gonna start to turn heads if people are like, wow, they, they compete in a different way. I mean, that, like, Jesus says that the gates of hell will not overcome his kingdom and we are a part of his kingdom. And he says that specifically. And, and it's interesting because what we do is like, we're just up against the wall like, well, he promised that the gates wouldn't overcome us. That, I mean, that hell wouldn't overcome our gates and we're just up against the gates like, <laughs> hope he comes in time. Man, that's so untough. Let's go storm hell. Let's go at them like our soldiers fight for our freedom. And let's just be faithful and say, look, I can be faithful. Don't, oh, I struggle with it. Shut up. Like, like when you really want something, when you really understand what the goal is, when you care about the goal and you want it so bad you can taste it, then you do what it takes. You've always done it. I don't know what the thing is for you, but you absolutely, absolutely you have always done it and if you've never seen a reward then then you probably haven't done much but whether it be a degree or whether it be the spouse you finally married and and you're like that's the reward and I will do what it takes to get that person to marry me or or whether it be your 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 job and like wanting a job so bad there's something that all of you have just said I'm going to do it for mothers it's raising their children well oftentimes it's like, I, it's gonna be hard, but I'm gonna do it because I know that I wanna see them succeed. I wanna see them love Jesus. And so whatever it is, I just put it in your head. You know, for this group of people in Smyrna, they would understand athletic athletics and, and they would have understood that metaphor and you probably get it too. If you've seen the Blazers in the last series and this series, then you get what this looks like and, and in your life you know and just apply it to your Christian faith. Say, Jesus, no matter what, no matter how painful or how much of a struggle or how, how much poverty I enter into or how much people make fun of me, I, I will do what you have asked me to do because I want the reward of eternal life. Will you pray with me? Lord, I, I thank you for how faithful you are to us and I apologize for how unfaithful I am to you oftentimes, God. And you know, in my personal life, that, that a lot of times I just do what's easier, what feels better, what's impulsive, instead of doing what you want. And you know that even in our church, God, it, it sometimes a, I, I wrestle, and I shouldn't even wrestle with this, but what is right versus what is easy or what will work or whatever it might be. And, and so I'm sorry for that, God. And I pray for each of us in this room. God, I pray that that we would be faithful to you. And Lord, sometimes I think we're like, we just say like, if Jesus only knew what I was going through or how much I had going on or this thing in my life. And you look at this church in Smyrna and God, they're going through terrible stuff and you say, I know. And then you tell them to be faithful anyway. 
God, I pray that you would restore to this church and the church, God, toughness, fortitude, faithfulness, God. I pray that we would be men and women who do exactly, God, what you want us to do, even if it will cost us everything, even if it will cost us our very lives, knowing, God, that the reward is a much better life in eternity with you where there will be no more, as we sang earlier, sorrow and no more pain, God. We know that we will rise, God, and so it ought to make us give you everything, and I pray, God, for us, for these people, the people of Creekside Bible Church, God, that that we would be so utterly faithful to you, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen. During this next uh, song, communion is going to be passed to you. And I would encourage you to remember that Jesus' death on the cross took away your sin so that we can even be on the team to begin with. And uh, the truth is nothing, it'd be stupid to serve Jesus with your entire life and become poor and uh, get made fun of and feel the affliction if our sins hadn't been taken away from us um, by Jesus' death on the cross. And as his body was broken, which is symbolized in the bread, and his blood was poured out, which is symbolized by the cup we will take, he was totally faithful to his Father in heaven, and he was also faithful to us. And he said, look, I don't care how hard it is, how difficult it is, how much pain I have to go through. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to be saved. I want you to be on my team. So he died for you. And so as this comes around during this next song and you hold it in your hands, I just ask that you would remember the faithfulness of Jesus and you would be thankful for it and you would be excited about it and you would let it somewhere deep in your soul compel you to be faithful back to him. Polycarp, thinking about reading this later, but Polycarp, uh, when asked to deny Jesus right before he was martyred, He said this, they asked him to deny and he said, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And then they said, hey, we're gonna bring in the wild animals. They will kill you. And he said, it is unthinkable unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad though to be changed from evil to righteousness. And then they said, well, if the animals don't scare you, then we're going to light you on fire. We're going to burn you to death. And Polycarp said, you threatened me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And Polycarp knew that that judgment, that thing that he, that that non-believers, unbelievers would face, he would not have to face. And so he said, because he understood the death of Jesus and how much it did for us and the way it took away our sin, he said, you can burn me because ultimately I won't be burned. Ultimately, I will live in eternity with the one who died for me.